So, uh, you know, I was raised in the church, um, a church, not this church, but a church. And I went to church every Sunday of every week of my life. And I think I've said this before, but when I wasn't in church on Sunday, if I actually got sick, my mom made sure that I watched TV church. Um, it was it was mandatory in our house, and I was familiar with those people on television who you see preaching on Sunday mornings. And uh, so I've always had this kind of church experience. And I got to tell you that when I was about 20 years old, something happened to me that caused me to rethink this whole faith thing. And I think it's going to be instrumental in helping us understand the story that we're going to talk about this morning. You know, I always went to church, but what I didn't always feel was the power of the Spirit of God. Sometimes, honestly, it seemed as though church was just there. In fact, after first service, a couple of folks who were there were talking about this with me, and and we agreed that sometimes church is like a party that we're not sure we want to go to, and then the people at church are like, you should invite your friends. And then we're all like, eh, or maybe even Christianity is like that. And that's how I was about 20 years old. I didn't necessarily invite my friends to this thing called church because I'm not sure that I enjoyed it necessarily myself. And then this guy, and I'll know, he, he's passed away, but his name was Phil. And Phil caught me in the cafeteria of my college, and he said, you know, you would be a great leader for a mission trip to Europe. Now, I had never, so help me, been on a plane before in my life. And I had never been overseas. And he was telling me I should lead a group of 30 people to Amsterdam, of all places. Now, do you know about Amsterdam? And he said, you're going to stay right in the middle of, a red light, of the red light district, in a youth hostel. This is true, a Christian youth hostel. And I got to tell you, I said, I don't think I can probably do it. Let me see. I don't even have a passport. And that was about the time, if you remember, Bill Clinton had shut down the government and you couldn't even get a passport. But I said, if I can get a passport, I'll apply and we'll see if I get it. And if I get it, then I'll get on the plane and I'll go. And he said, okay, it's a deal. And I got that passport two days before I was supposed to leave for Amsterdam, leading this trip into Europe. And I remember on the plane uh, thinking I'm responsible for all these people, most of whom I'd never met in my life before. Uh, You know, I was in college with them, but that didn't mean I knew them. And I was on the plane over, and I sat there, and I started to cry before God. Honestly, I don't want you to know this about me, but I'm just going to admit it. I was like, oh, Lord, I don't know where Netherlands, the Netherlands is on a map. I don't know that I ever wanted to go to Amsterdam. I don't know... I'm just scared. And I just have to tell you that if you'll be with me, I promise I'll live the rest of my life for you. I just put it out there, you know? And it was this moment. And one of the rare moments in my life to that point, I felt like God just came on that plane with me and started to talk. And it was like, you know what? You're going to be all right. It was the greatest month of my life so far. It was so awesome what God did on that trip with tens of thousands of people coming together for this missions conference. It was an amazing trip. And I learned something about God from that. And that's that it's not just enough to believe in all of the things you hear preached every week at Parker Ford Church. It's not enough to just believe the scriptures and what it tells us about God. We actually need this thing that I'll say is kind of authority. It's kind of a power that's at the center part of this faith, but it's not in your head. It's actually somewhere in your heart. And one of the things you see in the Gospels, and we're going to look at a passage in Mark this morning, is that as Jesus comes closer to his crucifixion, especially on the Passion Week, you're going to see him exude this tremendous power, this tremendous authority. He does some amazing things. Now, all across his life, he did amazing things. He turned these little fish and loaves into enough food to feed 5,000 people. And then he turned around and did it again for another 4,000. 
He healed lepers and lame people and blind people. And maybe the creme de la creme of all of his, of all of his miracles, he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, right? Those were all things that had a tremendous amount of power and authority. But when he got into Jerusalem the week before his death, on Sunday, he does this amazing act. Nobody's quite sure whether it's Sunday or Monday, but he actually does this thing. He comes up onto the temple, which is this massive expanse. I was just there, if you recall. It's this massive expanse of, of territory, acres and acres of land. And he, uh, he came up on it, and if you pictured the temple, it's going to help you. It's, it's 300 feet tall when Jesus is there. The pinnacle of the temple is 300 feet above the ground that it sits on. And the stones are so gigantic. I stood next to one on the temple mount that was 40 feet long, 12 feet tall, and 10 feet deep. These stones are so large that built the temple. They're so large that people today can't figure out how the Romans and Jews actually got them to the place where the temple is. They just had no idea how that worked. But Jesus climbs up on there, and what you need to know more is it was one of the most militarized areas in the Middle East at the time. There was this Roman garrison sitting on the outside of it, looking in all the time were dozens of Roman soldiers. And he did what I'm going to tell you about the story in a minute. He did this on a week when there were just thousands of people gathered for Passover. And there was the 71 Sanhedrin leaders, the people who were the religious leaders, the people of power. And then there were the Jewish soldiers on top of all that. And into the midst of all of that, Jesus walks with this authority, this presence, this thing that is just the X factor that you're going to hear so much about. And we talk about in our church often. He walks into this scene with thousands of people and he looks around and he sees all of these merchants. And they're selling doves and sheep and they're changing money into the temple currency. Have you ever gone to an Eagles game or maybe a Phillies game? And you ever paid for one of those sodas? How do you feel about buying a soda at a Phillies game? I mean, they cost like eight bucks, right? I mean, these things are just so expensive. I took my kids to the movie theater this past week, and we got a soda for them. At five twenty-five for a soda this big, you know? Well, that's what these merchants were doing. They actually charged all of this money just so people could get up on the Temple Mount and buy the right type of currency or the right dove to sacrifice and all this stuff. And it makes Jesus angry. And he goes around and he tips over all of these tables. He just tosses them over and he lets these doves free and he's kicking things and tossing things. And then, you know, he does that all within sight of all of these soldiers who none of them step in. In sight of thousands of people and some of them religious leaders who thought they were in power. And he did it with such authority that nobody stepped in and did a thing about what he did. You know, a few, I guess a few decades ago, there were these guys before Alcatraz shut down. There was three of them that escaped from Alcatraz, right out from San Francisco. You ever hear about this? And one of their sisters says she still gets letters from one of them. Apparently, they're on the lam. They're still running. I have no idea that that's true. But you hear stuff. There's specials on television about this. You know, the thing about those guys from Alcatraz is once they escaped, they didn't stick around. It's not like they got into San Francisco, ordered a bagel, and sat on the sidewalk and waited for the police to find them. When Jesus does this amazing act, there's such power in it that what he sits down and he starts to teach people. And they all stay. And nobody does anything about it. Nobody attacks him. Nobody crucifies him, which will happen later in the week. Nobody questions him about it. It's just insane what happens. Now, what I want to tell you is I think that's because Jesus had what I'll call spiritual authority. And I have to tell you one of my prejudices about Jesus, and that's that he's not acting as God. Now, we all know Jesus was God, right, and is God, and always will be God. 
But the fact is that when he came to earth, he didn't come as God. He put a lot of the power that comes with being God on the shelf. And he said, I'm going to come as a perfect man. And I'm going to show these people, you and I, what it's like to be a person who walks perfectly with God. And so what Jesus shows in the way of spiritual authority and spiritual power is actually there for us to understand that that is the power that God offers to Christians who have a perfect relationship with himself. So all of these miracles he does, that's not actually the power of God just acting as God. It's the power of God operating through a human being. And what Jesus did, on there, did up on the Temple Mount that day was one of the most astounding things anybody had ever seen, but he did it as a human being who had spiritual authority. And I want to go further and tell you that that's what I think happened to me when I was just this young college student. There was just a moment. Now, I didn't heal anybody. I didn't do anything amazing. I'm not trying to tell you that. But God reached into my life. And I can tell you about points in my existence where God has reached in, in a moment where I've prayed or a moment where I've sought him, and I've seen power. I've seen authority that's beyond. And he loves to do this for his children. So God, acting through the life of a single perfect man, did this amazing thing, cleansing the temple. We're going to pick up the story in just a moment, but I want to just put on the screen for you a definition of what spiritual authority is. You can read it with me. It says the ability to live supernaturally using the power of God to accomplish the will of God. The ability to use the supernatural power of God to accomplish what we all know is the will of God. That is spiritual authority. And what Jesus exudes on this week of his life as he's marching towards this final destination, the cross, and then ultimately the resurrection, is a tremendous amount of spiritual authority. He's going to teach with it. He's going to lead with it. He's going to act with it. He's going to offend people, and they're not going to get in the way because of this. And then at the very end, he's going to give up his life with authority. He's not going to act like he's just somehow killed accidentally. It's with a tremendous amount of authority he faces this moment in his life. And it's that authority that he offers to the life of every Christian today. So let me begin by reading for you. And we're going to turn, if you want to look in your Bibles, you can, or it'll be on the screen for you. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And I'm just going to read it, and we're going to kind of follow the storyline. It says, They arrived again in Jerusalem. This is on the next day after he cleansed the temple. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. And they asked a question. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? I've been in court several times. I don't want to tell you all the reasons I've been in court, but none of them are particularly scandalous, okay? We'll just leave it as that. But there was one really fun time I went to court. It was my brother's wedding day. Of all things, my brother invited me and my other brother. We, we, we all got to go to court with him. My brother's a police officer in the state of Michigan. He's a county sheriff. And he had caught this college student going at excessive rates of speed past him as he had that little gun that we all fear, you know, that radar gun. I don't fear the service revolver. I always fear the radar gun. And he caught this girl going who knows how fast. And he flips on the sirens and he takes off after her. And she's driving in this beat-up old Dodge, okay? And he's behind her in his brand-new Malibu or whatever. It was an Impala. And he's behind her, and it's no trouble to catch up to her. But instead of hitting the brakes and pulling off to the side, what do you think she does? She hits the gas. She hits the gas, and she leads him down the road in this beat-up old, rusted-out Dodge. She actually drove the Dodge to court, and I got to see the, the car she tried to outrun the police in. And, and as it turns out, the whole reason why she decided to try to outrun the police was because she realized that in Michigan, if you are a state trooper, you have a blue car, but if you're a county sheriff's deputy, you have a white car. And she said, behind me is a county guy. 
And up in front of me is the county line. And if I cross that county line, he's not going to have authority. He's going to have to hit the brakes, and I'm going to keep going. Well, she crossed the, the county line. And she didn't realize, and the magistrate later informed her, that in the state of Michigan, a cop can follow you as long as he wants if you've committed a crime. So she gets past the state line, and he chases her down, and she finally hits the brakes and says, you don't have any authority here. And he says, yes, I do, and you're going to jail. That's actually a true story. These, the, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, they ask Jesus a question, and they say, What's, what, what authority do you th- do this stuff in? And what they're saying is, this is my jurisdiction. This is my area of power. There's 71 of them, these religious leaders, and they're, they're, very, uh, they're always fighting and going over different issues of power. They maintained a, a, an iron grip on everything that happened in that temple courtyard. And Jesus had dared to show up and teach where they were supposed to be the teachers. And he, what's more, has kicked out all these people who they had given license to be there. The merchants that they'd given permission to be there, he says, no, get out. And so Jesus offended them tremendously. And, he said, and they say, we have authority here. What authority do you do this? What, what, whose name? What, who gave you permission is the question. Well, we'll continue reading. Jesus answers with a question. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's Baptist, he means John the Baptist, his cousin who recently died. Was it from heaven or from men? You tell me. And Jesus says, if you answer this question then I'll answer you the, the question you've a- asked me. Now, think about this for a second. John was this crazy guy who went around in camel hair. And he lived down by the Jordan River where it's all desert. And he ate the fruits of the desert. I won't go into detail, but some of you have read enough to know it. One of the things was grasshoppers, right? I mean, John was not a power broker sort of guy. But he preached with such authority, and there was something about God's hand that was on his life to the point where thousands of people came out from all of these different areas, and it would gather around him, and they would listen to his preaching, and they would say, yes, we're going to turn our lives over to God, and we're going to be baptized. And he would baptize them in the Jordan River. But the religious leaders would never get behind him because they were never quite sure that he wasn't just this rogue guy. He wasn't a real team player, and eventually he offended the political leader of their day to the point where they killed him. And so these religious leaders had never gotten behind him, but they never wanted to speak against him because the people thought of him as a legend. And so Jesus says, well, was there something spiritual, something heavenly that was operating in John the Baptist or not? Because if there's something spiritual that was happening in John, maybe there's something spiritual, something heavenly, something authoritative and with power that's happening right in your midst here today. And maybe you need to think that your power has blinded your eyes and you're living life by the normal and there's actually the supernatural that God is working in your midst. So his question is tremendously powerful. The, the uh, religious leaders, of course, don't know how to answer it. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I love that, don't you? I mean, you know these guys are trying to pin Jesus to the wall, and he avoids their question with another question, and it's really the right question to ask. Is there something supernatural? Is there something of a power greater than ourselves that is functioning within our faith and doing something that's beyond any of us? And what Jesus says is absolutely And the faith is to be lived with this supernatural power operating through human beings who influence their lives and the lives of those around them. 
Our children should be different. Our churches should be different. Our vocations should be different. Whatever it might be, if God is operating in it, then we should alter our lives based on this truth. And it's not enough to just live morally. What Jesus is saying is this spiritual authority changes everything. This spiritual power that God walks us through, it gives us the ability to change everything about our lives. Well, it doesn't rest there. Jesus goes on and in the midst of a story, he tells another story. He's asked a question, but now he's going to give them an answer. And the answer is going to be in the form of a parable. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he said. Now, you need to stop there and know I'm going to bring you up to speed. Anybody who was Jewish at that point would have immediately known what he was talking about. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah told a little story about a, a vineyard. And the guy who owned the vineyard was God. And it's very, very, very clear. And so everybody knew that immediately Jesus is retelling this story that a prophet in the Old Testament told, and he's letting them know this is God who's doing this work. So you need to know. You can just kind of translate God into the story. God planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Normal story. This is very normal in the ancient world for people to do this thing. They would, they would literally uh, just take their space and say, we're going to give our authority to the people underneath us, and they're going to manage this while we're gone. And they can earn some money with it, and they'll give us some of the money as well. Well, that's all fine and good, but what happens in this story? The renters are questionable, and you'll hear that in a moment. Who are the renters? You know, the people who rent are anybody that God gives authority to. The Bible tells us something interesting about you and about me and about everybody else in this world as well. It says in Genesis that we were created in the image and likeness of God. He created us to be his representatives. He told us that we were to subdue and take dominion over the earth, managing all of his creation. And he said what's more is multiply, spread out, and and take care of all of it. Get all across this globe. We've successfully done that now with about 7 billion people on the planet, right? We've actually spread out quite a lot. But the fact is what we never did was really use the authority that God gave us for the representation of God. Instead, we decided to move out of the way and say, God, we want to do it by our own power. We want to do this independently. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve. They take a bite of that fruit, they choose their own way, and they say, we want to operate in our own strength, in our own power. And that's, of course, what the religious leaders in Jesus' day are doing anyway. We want to operate this temple according to what we think it should look like. Who cares what God thinks? No big deal what God thinks. I mean, you know, that's extraneous issue stuff. You don't want to bring that up here. And Jesus says, no, the central issue is what God thinks. And what's more is the central issue is when we do what God thinks, he offers his power to accomplish his will. And you guys are walking devoid of power because you're walking devoid of God. You've left him behind. And your renters, and your renters who have decided not to do what the Father told you to do, you've decided to walk by your own power. Let me continue with the story. Jesus continues, but they seized him, and they beat this messenger and sent him away empty-handed. They didn't give the Father anything. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. If you're a religious leader in this story, you are starting to get angry. And frankly, if you're anybody who wants control of your own life, you're getting angry. 
Because what Jesus is saying is, we've sent prophet after prophet to you guys, and you've killed and you've beaten them up. And the latest one is John the Baptist, and he was killed, and you didn't listen to him. What is the matter with these renters that you don't listen to your God who loves you enough to put you in charge of some space and give you his good gift? What is the matter with you? And he pits these two things. On one hand is the power of being human, the normal everyday power that we exist within. We like to live life by this power, our own personal influence, our own ability to pay our own bills, our independent strength, whatever it might be. And it might not be that big, but we want to take care of ourselves. And what Jesus says is, I wanted to offer you much larger authority, much larger power, power to do what you were called to do according to the plan of God. I wanted to do this to save you, to give you this amazing hope. And yet you guys chose this other way. And you've chosen it ever since Adam and Eve, and you're still choosing it now as you let John the Baptist die and as you don't get behind him. You're not listening to the voice of God in your life. You know, power and authority are very different things. Each one of us has this kind of unique personal power. The great writer G.K. Chesterton 110 years ago had something to say about it. He said, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant right now, there is no denying he would have great power. You ever sat in a restaurant and had a rhinoceros come in with you? Probably not, right? I was sitting, I'm going to translate this into the 21st century. He wrote when there weren't any cars. Henry Ford hadn't invented the car when he wrote this. So I was sitting in a Chinese restaurant in Grand Haven, Michigan a few years ago with two friends of mine. And my one friend, he's just a great guy. He's just, I love having lunch with him. We were talking and he's a really cool guy. Not real expressive. He's sitting across the table from me. He's about five foot six. So he's sitting down like this, you know, and I got my back to the window and he's looking past me. And all of a sudden my friend Joe, his eyes get this big, gigantic eyes. And I, I brace myself for something. And then I hear it crash. A Buick LeSabre drives into the Chinese restaurant with us. This is true. Knocking over tables and chairs, spilling food and sending people, going all over the place. The people who own this restaurant, we went there often. They knew English quite well, but they immediately started speaking Chinese. You can imagine. It was really something. And this lady who was driving the car started to giggle. And as it turned out, she was a grandmother, and her daughter was in the passenger side, and her granddaughter was in the back. And she had lost her handbag, and it had flown underneath the brake pedal, and she couldn't stop the car. Now, let me tell you that the most powerful thing in that Chinese restaurant that day was a Buick LeSabre, right? Right? That's power. But it had no authority whatsoever. G.K. Chesterton goes on to say, but I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. No rhinoceros, no big thing can have power. In fact, power does something interesting. Power tells you where not to go. Power tells you how fast you shouldn't be driving. My brother has a certain amount of power. You have power over your children. You can say, don't do that, and they stop. But authority is something altogether completely different. Authority is the ability to tell your kids to do something and have them do it when you're not looking. Authority is the ability to educate and create space and create this opportunity for personal growth. And so the difference between power on one hand is the ability to say, no, you're not going to do this, to stop and destroy something if it goes a certain way. But the ability to have authority, that's the ability to build up and strengthen. It's the divine power that God puts in the life of human beings to do this amazing work that he created for us to do. That's authority. 
And what Chesterton says is there's a huge difference between people who have power and they live a natural life and they think that they're up to, you know, the normal existence. As long as they pay the bills and get the stuff in on time and their kids kind of turn out decent, well, then we're good folks. And we know we're just kind of okay. But Jesus wanted so much more. And he says, listen, you need something different. You need a spiritual authority. You need a spiritual power that only God can give you. And you need to start looking for it now. And these renters had betrayed that authority and that spiritual strength that God wanted to give them and had chosen their own way. And that's the story of our race of people. Jesus actually offers the secret to his authority in the passage just immediately preceding the one I read for you. This is from Mark 11, and it begins with verse 22. He's going to highlight three things that are key to understanding how to have spiritual strength, spiritual authority inside yourself. He says, first, have faith in God. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. What is he telling us in this passage? What he's telling us is that the first step to understanding how to have the kingdom of God alive in your life, the strength of God existing in your life, is to have this spiritual ability to look God in the face and say, you know what, I believe in you. You know, faith is something we talk a lot about, and it gets all sorts of bad press. I was in New York City a few years ago, and I'm not going to dime out the pastor who put this on the wall, but there was this gigantic billboard up on this building. It was painted on the bricks. I'll never forget it. And it said, why drive a Cavalier when you can drive a Cadillac? Go to my church. Why drive a Cavalier when you can drive a Cadillac? You know, God might not want you to own a Cadillac. God might not want you to be wealthy. God might not want you to have all these things. And believing in God getting your will done might not change a thing. In fact, I'm sure it won't. So what Jesus is saying is believe in God, but believe in what he is calling you to do. Faith in just faith is not anything at all. But faith in the real and alive person of Jesus Christ changes everything. And it may not give you a Cadillac. And going to this church, frankly, I don't think it's going to help you get a new car. Frankly, it's not going to make you wealthier. But what it will do is it will help you to translate what God's will is for your life and help you to understand what he wants for you. The second thing Jesus says is, therefore I will tell you whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The second step in gaining spiritual authority, first step is to believe that God actually does have this power. Second is that he might want to give it to you, but you've got to pray through and understand it. You have to walk in light of what God is doing now. Find out what he wants to do and put yourself in that place of accomplishing it. So prayer is the connection between us and God. And then third, he says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may may forgive your sins. We have this uh, thing in our house on days off. Saturday is a day off and we have quiet time. And no matter how old we are, 36 at the top end, five on the bottom. Everybody does some quiet time. You know what I mean? We just need that rest as a family. And uh, in the middle of quiet time, two of our kids went outside of their bedroom doors and had first a great playtime and then an enormous fight. And they were sitting there pummeling each other when quiet time officially ended. You know, you know what I'm saying? And I came out there to my daughter and we actually had to set her aside into another room. And I sat down next to her and she said, why do we do all these bad things? I tried to explain it, you know. I mean, since Adam and Eve, there's this thin thing, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, Dad, why do you talk like this, you know? And then she said, and then she looked at me and she said, I think the toughest thing is to forgive. 
And I thought, you know, Maggie, you're really on to something here. The toughest thing in the world that I can think of, quite possibly, is to forgive. And what's more is God says you will lose belief in him. You will lose the ability to pray. You will lose spiritual authority. You will lose that vitality in your heart, the ability to walk with him in this existence if in any moment you choose not to forgive those who have wronged you. What a damaging thought that is. You know, power doesn't like to let go of things, but Jesus does. Let me break that down a little more for you, and then we'll move on with the story. Spiritual authority comes from faith, says Jesus. So believing Christ has authority over all things is the starting point for it. The opposite of that is that we want to do things according to our own skill, the power that we have within us, the relationships that we have, the effort that we can put forth. When we run up against a roadblock, what do we do? We just want to work harder? Sometimes we're supposed to say, no, let's stop. You know, this past a couple weeks ago, I was trying to do something in ministry, and I'd worked for weeks to get it done, and it just wasn't working. There was one person in my way. I was calling this one organization. It was a nonprofit, and I was trying to get through to them, and I was trying to say, you need to help us. We've got somebody who needs your particular service, and they would never take the call, and they would never call back five weeks of calling. And finally, one day, I said, I'm just going to drive over there with my friend, and we're going to see what happens. And we're two blocks away, and we decide to pray. And when we got to this place, the lady who would never call us back, she called in sick and went home. She called her boss from her office and said, I'm sick, I need to leave. And the director of this ministry came out and helped us. And the whole thing just went right from that moment on. Five weeks of work. I had stopped by, called. I literally at one point entered somebody's office and said, hey, I need you to help us. And she shut the door in my face. It was really rude. I was tremendously offended. And yet in one moment of prayer... God broke through that whole thing. And I thought, you know, why don't I believe in this stuff? Why do I lose faith? Why do I stop believing that God wants to act in our life on a day-to-day level? Why is that? Spiritual authority comes from prayer. Following Christ's plan for each situation means walking with this prayer thing in our hearts every day, communing with God, connecting with him. The opposite is walking according to our own plan. Spiritual authority comes by forgiving. You know, we have to agree that God forgives not just your sins and not just mine, but everybody else's too, right? Isn't that tough? Accepting the forgiveness of Jesus, well, that's one thing. Okay, thank you, God, for forgiving me. But I have to accept that he forgives the people that I don't want to forgive. And then I have to get my heart over there to forgive them. And in the words of Maggie, that's the toughest thing to do in the history of the world. And yet that's what gets between us and God. And it's where our spiritual vitality goes. It's where the power drains out of our lives and we lose what God has for us. Well, on with the story. Jesus finishes it. He said, he had one messenger left to send. This time it was a son whom he loved. He sent this son last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill this son and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? I have to tell you that I think at this point, everybody loses Jesus. They're just like, what are you talking about? Son of God? They didn't even know God had a son at this point. And they don't understand what he means, and they don't understand what what he's talking about in the way of prophesying his death. And this is Monday. And on Friday, Jesus actually does die, right? Same week. Now, I want you to think for a second. What will the owner of this vineyard do? Don't look up on the screen. I know it tells the answer which means for sure you're going to look, right? But, but just imagine, what does a just landowner do after he's had servant after servant, prophet after prophet beat up, after some of them have been killed, and then he sends his son and he dies? What's going to happen? What's right in this situation? 
He's going to kill him, right? So fast forward with me. Jesus teaches his way through Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday. And on Thursday night, he meets with his disciples in this place called the Upper Room. And they share a Passover dinner together. And he initiates the First Communion. And he washes their feet and shows them what real service is like. And then he prays this great prayer that's in John chapter 17. And then he leads them out of the Upper Room and across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's up there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he leaves eight disciples behind and he takes three with him. If you're doing the math, that doesn't equal 12 and that's because Judas has already left to go betray him to the religious leaders. These very same people we're talking about in this story. Judas chooses the power route and these eight disciples sit and they pray and he goes on with Peter, James, and John, the closest disciples to him and he's wanting them to pray but they kind of fall asleep and he moves on and he prays all by himself. And it's at that point that Judas comes out and with this band of leaders and people with military garb, he comes up to Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek. Jesus spends the rest of that night in a cave on the bottom of the city of Jerusalem, the south end. And he waits for the religious leaders to get their act together. And then they call him out. And he stands before the religious leaders of the day first. And then Pilate, when Pilate finally wakes up. And then Pilate sends him to Herod. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate proclaims him innocent and says, you don't need to die, but I don't know what to do about this mob. And eventually, as you know, the mob says, crucify him. Let's kill him. And about noon on Friday, they nail his hands to the wood of the cross and his feet to the wood of the cross. And he takes upon him all of the sin of every renter that has ever been on this planet. All of the people, you, me, and everybody else who has ever had spiritual authority given them by God and trusted to them in some level and he's nailed to the cross with all of this authority failed, nailed with him. And he's up there on the cross and he sits there for three hours in excruciating agony. At the end of it, about 3 p.m., the Bible tells us he gives up his spirit. And the earth shakes and the darkness falls and the temple veil tears in two. I always think that's like the moment in The Wizard of Oz you know, where the wizard kind of shows up and you realize he's just this little guy with a bunch of levers who gets stuck in this weird land. I kind of think that because it's not that I disbelieve in God, it's that I disbelieve he was ever in that Holy of Holies. He was actually outside of it. And so this temple veil tears and all of this stuff happened, but something does not happen. Do you know what does not happen in this moment? What doesn't happen is God doesn't kill anyone. God in his righteousness somehow does not come down to earth. He does not destroy the city of Jerusalem that has just killed his son. The renters are all there, and yet God is letting the one person who should not have died die without any justice at all. Pilate himself proclaimed this Jesus to be innocent. Why in the world are all these people getting away with it? And according to this story, let me read it for you one more One more time, verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. No surprise, that's what justice would do. But something else happens. They kill Jesus and they get away with it. And then the words of Jesus, the prophecy that maybe nobody understood in this moment comes to light. Verse 10, haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected. The son that you kicked out of the vineyard and you killed. You cast him aside and he's laying there dead in the dirt. 
That stone that didn't seem to fit, a capstone was this weird-shaped stone that sat at the top of an arch, and all of a building rested on this one stone, and it had to be a perfect stone and a perfect shape, and it would have looked different than every other stone in the building, and all of this archway depended on this one stone to fit the right way. But the builders early on said, no, we're not going to go with that stone. And what Jesus prophesies in this very story four days before he dies, is that God is going to pick that stone up and he's going to dust it off and he's going to put it back in place and he's going to offer all of that spiritual life and hope and authority back through that Jesus. You've kicked aside the Son of God, he says. You've killed him, but it's not the end. It's not the end. And God is so merciful that he's going to come back and that spiritual authority that he wanted to offer the human race to live out the life that they were supposed to since the Garden of Eden, but it failed all of that is going to come back and become possible again. All of that spiritual life, all of that goodness, all of that hope is going to come back again through Jesus. It's the most surprising twist. This story, which should have ended with a bunch of people's deaths, ended only with one person's death, and then three days later, a resurrection. And Jesus, the perfect man, God become human, died for all of us. Jesus, the perfect human being, becomes that capstone who is put back in the pinnacle leadership spot. You know, a few years before this, Satan had tempted this guy, Jesus. And he had said, listen, why don't you climb up to the top of the temple, and if you're really the Son of God, throw yourself down and let the angels catch you, and then everybody will know you're the Son of God, and we won't have to question it anymore. But instead, Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. That's just crazy. What are you talking about? But now the temple leaders have cast him down. They have thrown him aside and they have killed him. And it's not going to be an angel that raises him from the dead. It's going to be God himself. And it's as though he lives out the storyline of what Satan always wanted for him to live out. He wanted this to happen. And in the moment when you would have thought it was the greatest defeat in the history of the world, God clinches an amazing victory, putting up this stone that the builders rejected and making it the chief stone, the keystone, the capstone of all of what God is trying to do in this planet. So when you're thinking about how to raise your children, when you're thinking about vocational choices that you're making, when you're thinking about how to husband or parent or love or be a wife to, whatever it might be, God has called you to specific areas. And there is a range of influence that he has called you to, and it's different than mine. It's different than every other person's on this planet. If we turn to Ephesians 2, the Bible literally says that God has good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that were made ahead of us for, for us to do. Only you can do those good works. Only you can build the kingdom of God where you are. And God puts all of this authority through Jesus into our lives, reconnecting us to the flow of what God has always wanted to do, empowering us to become people who can live his plan out on earth. That's an amazing God. That's an amazing story. We killed him. We were there. We're the renters. We're the people who took that spiritual authority and twisted it. And Jesus says, listen, what you need is to believe. You need to pray. And you need to forgive. And you need to walk in that through every day of your life. And then watch me move because I want to do the supernatural in your life. I want to turn the hearts of your kids. I want to change the relationships that you think are going south. I want to help you to walk through life with the power of the risen Savior. Join me in prayer.